Welcome to the second series of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. We're really excited to be back for a second season and to be able to continue to connect readers and writers in the Midlands and far beyond. You can download our podcast episodes from all the places you would normally get your podcast every Thursday and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. All of our festival events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. In this week's episode, writer Will Buckingham talks to journalist, screenwriter and broadcaster Safraz Mansour about his latest book, They, what Muslims and non-Muslims get wrong about each other. Join them as they talk about the deep divisions in British culture and the way that stories can connect us and promise a much more hopeful future. Hello and welcome to this Birmingham Lit Fest podcast. I'm Will Buckingham and I'm your host for today's show. I'm a writer and philosopher originally from the UK, but I'm currently an immigrant to Sofia, Bulgaria. And today's guest, I'll be talking to Safraz Manzor, whose brilliant book, They, What Muslims and Non-Muslims Get Wrong About Each Other, has just been published. Safraz is a journalist, an author, broadcaster, and he's written and presented documentaries for BBC Radio and Television, and is a regular columnist for The Guardian, The Sunday Times, and The Times. His first book, a memoir called Greetings from Berry Park, was published to critical acclaim in 2007, and it was adapted for the big screen in 2019 and released as Blinded by the Light, which I've just added to my to-watch list. And Safraz lives in London, he's married with two children, and a cat calls Socks. So I'm hoping that Socks will also call by to have their say in this podcast at some stage. So Safraz's book, They, is an insightful journey across and between cultures, an attempt to cut through what sometimes seems like the clamour of mutual misunderstanding and to take a long, long and intensely personal view into relationships between Muslims and non-Muslims in today's Britain. So welcome on board, Safraz. Hi, Will. Good to talk to you. Very nice to chat to you. I thought a good place to start talking about your book was about your own experience as somebody who is a living example of the complexity of identity and belonging that you explore um, in the book. So the title of your book might suggest to readers that Muslims and non-Muslims are very kind of distinct blocks of people, but in reality things are much fuzzier, more interesting and more tangled. So I'd love you to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how throughout your life you've navigated these complexities yeah i mean it's interesting because i always think with identity there are sort of there's two sides to it one is how you identify yourself but there's also how others identify you you know and so it's interesting so the book title is they what muslims and non-muslims get wrong about each other but growing up i wasn't the Muslim part wasn't really a big part of my identity. So I grew up in working class Luton in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, my dad worked at the Vauxhall car factory. I went to you know, just a standard, bog standard comp. And if you had asked me at that point what my identity was, it would have been Pakistani, really. It was much more about that. My dad never really talked about religion, but he talked about Pakistan and he talked about it in you know, in opposition to England, even though we happen to live in England. So my identity was Pakistani. And then I guess it was also working class. You know, I, did, I wouldn't have used those words necessarily because that was all I knew. 
But certainly when I went to university, I was really aware, you know, that work, the things that my, the things that I like, the things that weren't available to me, the social networks that weren't available to me, that was all about class. So I think class and nationality were my identities. And I really, to be honest, didn't really think about the religion stuff until other people started thinking about it for me. So that was either, you know, with the, with the, with the Rushdie affair in the late 80s, that obviously was a big moment, and then obviously since 9-11 as well. Um, and that's when those identities start becoming more prevalent, you know? And so, and then you you get into uh, different sorts of lives. And so now I would say, frankly, my identity is more husband, father, you know, middle-aged man, all those kind of things. But, and this is the part that I was, it's interesting, is when I walk down the street, most people still don't see those things. They still see skin color. They still see ethnicity. They still think maybe religion. And so that's the thing. It's like what I'm fascinated by is whatever narrative we have of ourselves compared to what others have. So for example, with you, you're in, you're in Bulgaria right now. Now, because of the fact that you are white-skinned, if you were walking down the street in Sofia, Nobody would know that you were British, would they? And so the identity that you have of yourself versus what anybody will see of you will be, this, will be totally different. And it's only when you open your mouth that that might get revealed. Whereas if you come from a background like mine, people are always projecting their ideas of what, you th- what they think you are. And so that's part of the story in the book as well. Which is, I suppose, in a way, why the book's called They, because it's about that ascribing identity to other people. Exactly. And it's also this idea about otherness that we talk about. You know, otherness is quite a fashionable word. But it's, I'm always fascinated by what is it that allegedly binds us and doesn't, you know? And so one of the, you know, I go through, we can talk about the structure, but what I try and do in my book is when I, I sort of imagined I was sitting opposite an Islamophobe and I was asking them, so what do you think Muslims are like? And I imagine that they would have a list of all these kind of things that they only live amongst themselves. They only want to marry other Muslims. They, they hate Jews. They hate gays. Their religion is extreme. And I just thought I'd go through each one of those and start sort of examining it, interrogating it and doing that sort of thing. But the interesting thing about that is the idea of they. I, I started looking into the chapter, for example, about extremism. And I was thinking, these people come from my same ethnic slash religious heritage but i would consider them they they've got nothing to do with me you know whereas if you and i both like going to secondhand bookstores i would think of you and me as part of the same tribe and it's interesting to me about how fluid those things are and how much one is allowed to shift those borders and how much one isn't so that's that's also part of the story that you know we're not we as you say we're more than our, we're more than the labels that seem the most obvious labels to put on ourselves one of the things i really enjoyed about the book was how the stories you tell and we could probably talk about storytelling later give a real sense of the massive diversity of ideas views practices ways of life within people who are identify as a Muslim within the UK. And one thing I am interested in is how that a greater appreciation of that complexity can bring more nuance to those intractable problems of, you know, we versus them. Well, I think about the thing about that is I think it's much more easy to be certain when you don't know very much. <laughs> That's definitely true. So don't you think? So like um I just recently turned fifty and 
I now feel so much less certain about the things that I thought I knew than I would have done even 15 years ago, you know, which is partly why this book isn't a polemic. You know, it's not a book which I sort of bang out one particular opinion and then just sort of, you know, bash you around the head with it. It is much more nuanced because I just don't feel as sure about things. And so part of that is about what do you think Muslims are like? And it's about the fact that actually we're more complicated. And this is the thing that you know, real life, in real life, people are way more complicated than the labels that we might attach to them, you know? And so when it comes to what you say about, you know, how can that help us? Well, you can help us because every stereotype that you might have about a Muslim, in quotes, there will be stories that will challenge that. There will also be stories that confirm it. Don't get me wrong. This isn't some sort of rose-tinted portrait which suggests that, you know, everybody is enlightened and everybody is progressive and it's all just a media conspiracy. There are definitely challenges. But for every story about someone who completely, you know, uh, totally contra to totally tells somebody that their, their their son who is gay is never going to be seen again and expels them from the family. There's also a story about a very traditional Muslim mother who embraces her gay son. You know, and so I guess the point about that is it makes you rethink what you think you know. And one of the thoughts that I had when I was trying to write the book is I kind of wanted, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, I wanted there to be things in the book which would surprise you and, and challenge your worldview, you know? And that would be true whether you are progressive or whether you're not. I just think that because real life is a bit more messy than that. And I think once you start getting into the nitty gritty and the granular details of how people live their lives, they don't fit into neat boxes and they don't fit into neat boxes of either the liberal or the conservative side of things. So it's, it's part of your aim, really, to use those stories to dissolve that monolithic sense of they so that we can actually start thinking about connecting with real human beings and real human stories a bit more. Yeah, and don't you think, I mean, you know, tell me what you think, but isn't it the case that if you, I mean, one of the things I was thinking of, it was one of my ideas, was that I imagined my mother walking down the street, you know, wearing her dabatta and just walking along. This is back when she was a little bit more, she's quite frail now. And if you, walk, if you saw her, you would just think, traditional Pakistani woman, doesn't speak English, you know, she's probably very, you know, she's probably a nice person, but what have I got to do with her? But it's only if you could get to know her story and you would sort of see that, you know, this is a woman who had arrived into Britain in 1974, not having seen her husband for 11 years because he had left 11 years earlier and then raised four children, worked as a seamstress until one in the morning and sort of given all of her life so that her children could be, could be happy. And if you humanized her, then you'd think, oh, I'm also somebody, I know, that reminds me of the, my mother, or it reminds me of my gran, or it reminds me of someone, and suddenly you see her as a human being and not as this sort of slightly othered person. But it's only by getting to know people that you can do that. So, I mean, don't you think that as well? Because this is some of the work you've done as well, isn't it? The writing you've done. But it's about humanizing people, and then you realize that you've got more in common with them. So I think it is. I mean, I think it's it's on first encounters with anybody. Um, so my last book was about strangers. Hello, stranger. Just out from Granta. And about the how when we first meet strangers, there's that often very immediate sense of uh, fear or unease and how that's actually quite natural, but how you connect across that and how you can find points of connection. And those can, as you say, be in all kinds of interesting places and be found where you least expect it. Um, so I don't know what your mother's hobbies and obsessions are, but you know maybe there you 
if I got chatting to her, we'd find that there was this thing we shared. Or I, in my own experience, I've travelled in Pakistan in the past, and so that would be it might be a point of contact. Or suddenly there would be, uh, or it could be food, or food, always food. It's always food, isn't it? And a lot, quite a lot of the stories in your book um, take place around around tables at various points. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just it's interesting about you know, like for example, when my when I'm up with my with my wife, uh, she's you know, she's white, she's Scottish, and she's not a Muslim. But what was interesting is that she had spent a lot of time traveling around India and gotten spending so much time that she actually had a working knowledge of Hindi. And so when my mother first heard about the fact that I was seeing this woman, you know, she's put her in the they box, white person, what she's going to have to do with me, blah, blah, blah. Took a while for her to not put her in that box. But one of the ways that it happened is that when she started actually talking to, to, to Bridget, uh, Bridget was able to understand what she was saying when she was speaking in Urdu and also respond, not completely fluently, but enough. What was interesting is that the language bridge meant that for that moment, my mum sort of forgot that Bridget was white, yep. you know, yep. because the language sort of trumped skin colour and ethnicity. She was like, no, no, she's really one of us, you know, and the language helped helped do that for her. Is that, do you think that's part of the trick, the forgetting that somebody else is different rather than making heroic efforts to overcome difference, but just somehow forgetting? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I went to, um, when Blinded by the Light came out, I was uh, I was in New York and we did a screening for, in New York City. And uh, there was quite a few Springsteen fans who were at the screening. And I remember afterwards, these two, this couple came to me. They were from New Jersey and they were like almost stereotypically New Jersey hardcore Springsteen fans, you know. And they said that they loved the film and they were going on about it. And I was like, can I just ask you a question? You know, have you spent an hour and a half, two hours ever with a traditional Pakistani family? And they were like, no, no, of course, no, of course we haven't, you know. And I said, so isn't it weird that you have just spent that time watching this story? And the guy just looked at me and he said, yeah, but you're just like a Pakistani version of me. Okay, yeah. And so what was interesting is that the, the fact that we both were into Bruce Springsteen, it made him forget that actually I was British and Pakistani. You know? Yeah, of course, yeah. And so that's, I think, that's about storytelling, but it's all about that commonality thing as well, isn't it? And I think it's about finding that, but you only find that if you actually interact. And one of the things that's a theme in the book is that too often communities are not interacting. So whether it's about, you know, whether it's, for example, you know, parts of Birmingham, parts of Bradford, parts of uh, Luton, parts of Blackburn, where there are these communities that are still very, very almost living in sort of a homogenous, um, very, very separate lives, or whether it's about, you know, how many Muslims actually get to know anybody who's Jewish and have them as friends, you know. So it's about breaking down what you think you know, but you can only do that if you reach across, and you can only reach across if you have the opportunity to meet someone who's different. And there's, I mean, the book is full of lovely stories about, uh, as well as being full of um, quite sort of terrifying stories about division, is full of lovely stories about those points of contact, the um, connections between Jewish and Muslim communities in Bradford, for example or the story that I also talk about in my book about the York Mosque 
and the EDL who turn up to protest. Oh yes, yeah. Well, the EDL came, and then the the the, the guys in the mosque offered to make a cup of tea for them, and they and they end up playing football in the mosque grounds and cracking jokes. And suddenly, there's this point of contact because I think the one of the mosque mosque elders said, uh, "Tea is the great the great connector." particularly in Yorkshire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that everything can absolutely always get solved. I'm not trying to say that if we could all just sit around, we'd all get better. But I just feel like it might be that you'll find that... I often feel like the divisions are actually between people who are reasonable and not reasonable, rather than between religions or... You know, it's it's really just about whether you can be reasonable or not. And there are unreasonable people in all communities. And we just mustn't always assume or let them only have the microphone. Is there also, I think, an element um, in these sort of big issues of how, how we live together of getting used to living with some degree of discomfort? Because actually people are, are not always like us. They're not always going to do the same things that we're going to do. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I think it's about who do we choose to feel uncomfortable around and who do we tolerate that uncomfortableness around, you know? So a good example, I guess, is about the niqab, isn't it? So I. As I say in the book, I feel a sense of discomfort if I'm surrounded, or I certainly did in the past, where I would just feel, what is the message you're trying to send? And I I would start thinking there's all sorts of agendas around why would somebody deliberately wear something like this, etc., etc. But then you sort of spend time actually talking to people who wear the niqab. You get some sense of a perspective of how few people actually in Britain do it. And then you think, well... I actually get discomforted by people who've got massive amounts of tattoos and piercings walking down the street. But I don't necessarily, you know, we don't find politicians necessarily weaponizing that. But we just put up with that, you know, or we tolerate it or we think that's part. And so it's interesting to me what we choose to be okay with in terms of discomfort and what do we choose to make a big issue about. Also, there's a couple of things uh, when you're talking about the niqab that struck me on reading the book. And one was you go down to Leicester and talk to a group of women in Leicester, if I remember rightly. Yes, yes. And the first thing that struck me, I lived for a decade in Leicester, and um, the moment you were talking to people from Leicester, I felt a sense of, oh, well, they're okay. Um, They're us, they're not them. And um, so for me, that, that sense of mutual belonging to a place sort of trumped other things. But... But when you were chatting as well to people, what was really fascinating was how the women you were talking to, all of them had very, very different reasons for wearing a niqab. They did, yeah. And I mean, also, just just to backtrack on that a little bit, I really wanted to sort of talk to somebody because I, you know, obviously Boris Johnson had made his thing about letterboxes and it was something that was in the, that was that was a story in the news and it had been for a while. And I was just really conscious that I actually didn't know anybody who wore a niqab. Nobody in my social circle did. But then also when I asked people who were in my social circle if they knew anybody, they didn't either. And I was just like, well, what does that say about the world that I'm in? But also, you know, that's, that's a journalistic failing for me to not to talk to anybody. So then I sort of worked harder to find people. And then I spoke to quite a few, actually. And what was interesting is there wasn't one single reason. You know, some people believed that it was genuinely a religious thing. Other people did it because... You know, I think part, some of it was that people felt, one other person said to me, the more I was told that this was something that was a problem, or the more that other people pointed the finger at it, the more it made them feel more desiring and more confident and wanting to do it as well. You know, So if you tell me that I can't, then I'm going to do it more. 
that sort of idea. The thing I found the most actually interesting about it was when I, I think I, I included this in the book, I think, that when I met them, one of the women said to me, you know, it's only because you're Muslim that I'm wearing the niqab today. That's really interesting, yes. And I said, I thought, I thought that, yeah, and I, I thought that meant that she was dressing up for me as if like, you know, like uh, somebody who's sort of in a historical reenactment or something. And they were just like doing this because I'm writing the book. And I said, and is that, but it turned out, no, she said, if you were white, I would have been more, I would have been respectful for the fact that you might have found that a bit uncomfortable and I would have worn something else. But because you're Muslim, I assume you understand my need and my want to wear the niqab. And so that's why I'm wearing it for you. And I had always just thought it was much more black and white. You either wear it or you don't. And I mean, maybe this says something about my, my ignorance, but I didn't realise that somebody would just decide on Monday that they would and on Tuesday they wouldn't. Do you know what I mean? I mean, one thing that, again, I liked about the book is the way it moves away from that sort of black and white to plunge plunge you into a, a sort of sea, sea of complexity and nuance and everything else. And I'm wondering if the responses, what the responses to your book have been so far, because a lot of people might want clear answers, a programme of action, you know, this is Safras Manzor's programme for changing the world um, in response to these issues. And is there, has there been from some kind of corners a certain frustration that you're not giving that? You're giving nuance upon nuance and complexity upon complexity. Um, but there's no one problem and no one solution, maybe. That's a really good question, to be honest. And there's a couple of different ways to answer that, really. One is that when I started, when I first offered the, the idea of the book to the publishers and to my agent, and we sort of initially started talking about it, it was, I think, going to be more of what you've just said. Like, you know, um, not like a manifesto as such, but, you know, there would be a sort of a blueprint of how does one make things better. Okay, yeah. And I think that is what the publishers were expecting, to be honest, at the beginning. And then I started, what happened actually, it was the reaction to Blinded by the Light. Because what happened when that film came out was I just started getting responses from all around the world. It's on Netflix now. You know, I'm still getting it now. Oh, is it? Ah, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, there will be a, hardly a day goes by that I won't get somebody messaging me about it, you know, because they'll have seen it for the first time. You'll probably message me later this week after you've seen it, you know. I will do, yeah. <laughs> and people, uh, but what was fascinating to me was people would say, this is completely connecting to me, but they'll be, in, you know, they'll be Korean. Um, or somebody will be Mexican, or somebody will be American, or whatever. And I realized, it's a bit like what I said to you earlier about the guys in New York, that they were being compelled emotionally to believe and be interested in a story because of the storytelling. Okay, yeah. You know, because of character and storytelling. I had, that film was not a polemic about race and class, about Muslim identity and belonging. It was, it was nothing about it. It was just, it was storytelling, but all those things were in it. And I just thought, you know what? I want to engage people emotionally and I want them to care about the characters and I want them to care about individuals and I want them to care about, you know, my journey. And I think that's more interesting than trying to write a manifesto, you know? So I genuinely just made a decision that I was actually going to go and I was going to highlight and foreground storytelling and let the issues and the possible policy implications flow from that organically. So there are some things I talk about. I talk about the importance of trying to meet people who are different. I talk about breaking down catchment areas in schools, for example. I talk about English lessons and how they... So there are some tangible things in the book, but 
I didn't, I just thought it'd be more interesting to write a book where you care about what you're reading story-wise rather than the other kind of book. Now, the second part of what you're saying is, is that, you know, is there some sort of, a, has there been any kind of kickback on that or whatever? I mean, it's still early days and there hasn't been so much of that, but there is a broader and a more an interesting question that you just flows from that, which is, do people want nuance? Do people want complexity? You know, so a book which says, you know, this is what you need to do to make to be an anti-racist or this is what you need to you know those books which just tell you what to think and what to do which are very clear and bold so a book that's rough that's more or less a listicle you know one of those online lists buzz yeah you know those sorts of things you know what white people need to do next or those sorts of books you know i can totally see those i can see the appeal of that for somebody who wants that sort of thing and in a way but i just ultimately i just wanted to do the book that was going to serve what was in my heart and what I really wanted to do. And also, I'm kind of not that interested in a book which is only about this moment. I just sort of feel like this is a book that could be read in five or ten years and it will tell people, you know, something that will be a resource that will still stand the test of time, you know. And so the answer is, I think you're probably right. There might actually have been a more commercially successful or, you know, whatever book, which is a more of a manifesto, which is much more blunter. But I can live with that because I wanted to tell a, tell a more complicated and a more richer story. And, you know, I'll, I'll take the punches as they come from whether it's about critics or whether it's on, you know, commercially, because I wanted to write this book. And just to pick up on that thing of standing the test of time, is it, so in your view, is it really stories that do that above anything else, above arguments, above polemic? I think so. I mean, what do you think? I just feel like, you know, when I think about the things I return to, I don't like being bashed around the head and being told what to think, firstly. And I also just feel you're more likely to engage with people on an emotional basis than on an intellectual basis. You know, people, whether it's about, you know, you look at, you know, the, the, the Leave campaign on Brexit, that was an emotional storytelling. That was a piece of emotional storytelling, wasn't it? It was about the idea of Britain, the idea of past glory being returned, about control. There's are emotional storytelling, you know? Yeah. And I think that, that's just what interests me as well. That's just what I would like to do. I don't want to be a, you know, I'm not a polemicist. I'm not a politician. That's just not the world I want to go into. But the interesting thing is, I think there's a lot of nutrition in the book. It's just disguised and buried rather than being the thing that you immediately go to. Is that, um, did working on the, also on the screenplay for the film, um, so just a bit of background for those who haven't um, seen the film or read the book. So Blinded by the Light is an adaptation of your memoir, Greetings from Berry Park. Um, and you contributed to the screenplay as well? Well, I wrote the book and then I worked with Gurinder on the screen. I worked with Gurinder Chad on the screenplay as well, yeah. Did that shift your shift your approach to storytelling doing that as a writer? It did a little bit. I mean, I've talked a little bit before about the idea of the emotional storytelling. And I think also it's just about sort of, what was also interesting about it is that it sort of tapped the universal, you know. So, the, so essentially there are certain universal things. We all want to make our parents proud, you know. Most of us want to live lives that are less than, you know, that are uh, lives less than ordinary, you know, and and I think those kind of universal ideas about love, about escape, about ambition, about parental relationships, those are sort of universal. So in the book, you know, there's quite a few stories about people leaving home, 
like a 17-year-old girl will leave home because her parents wanted her to get married to somebody she didn't want to get married to. The, also, the thing about love, you know, this amazing, like one of the things which is really fascinating to me about writing the book has been to be able to sort of imagine how my life might have turned out had different things happened. So, for example, when I was 17, 18, my dad when I suggested that a girl back in the village in Pakistan for me to marry. And I've written about this in in the book, and it's sort of it's it's an easy thing for people uh, to sort of serialize and pick up on. But the interesting thing for me was I didn't do that. I didn't get married at seventeen, but I was fascinated to know what it would have been like to have done that. And so in the book, there were people who at that same on that same year at that same age had their dad say to them, "There's a girl who's on a plane. She's coming all the way from Karachi or Zanzibar, and uh, we're going to go and get a bus to Heathrow, and you're going to marry her." And then they did. And it's fascinating to see how that turned out, good or bad, you know. And so those kind of anyone who's, uh, who's any, who, you know, anyone can understand how that might feel or be interested in those kind of big emotional responses. And so I think that is one of the things I learned from right in, 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 in the film was just these big emotional moments. Because this book, I think, is full of quite big emotional moments where like, you know, whether it's about, you know, something tragedy of like, you know, somebody who ends up uh, killing themselves because their parents will not accept their homosexuality or a massive upbeat moment of somebody being reunited with their parents after 20 years on the run, you know, those sorts of things. And so I think that was one of the things I learned was just the power of the big emotional peaks. When you were talking just then about um, how life could have been otherwise, it does strike me the book is sort of underpinned by a sense of the contingency of human lives with all those different stories and how you get on the train running from hey on why, is it, and you turn right rather than left and flop down opposite you know, the woman who becomes your wife. And that underlying sense of how different life could have been had you turned left. So there is, I think that's one of the interesting things also about stories is they awaken you to that contingency yeah it's really interesting i mean i've actually got chills just you just telling me that has just i've just got chills just thinking about how different life could be if you just want to test take turned left you know there are two children who exist in the world who wouldn't be wouldn't be here if i had taken a left you know but then also going further back my dad came to britain in 1963 he was the only one out of his siblings who did so you know it's kind of interesting to me about like how much we think we're the author of our own fate and how special we are to have achieved whatever we have achieved. And you think, well, if my dad had been like his brothers and sisters and decided, no, I think I'll stay in Pakistan, none of this would be happening, you know? And so it is amazing, just as you say, about those choices people make. But one of the things that's interesting in the book is, I, because I wanted the book to essentially be a search for hope, um, a, a, a clear-eyed search for hope, but still a search for hope, there's quite a lot of moments in the book where somebody faces a decision and then they make a decision and that changes something. So for example, you'll remember the story from a couple of years ago about the Muslim woman on the tube who was who saw a Jewish guy being harassed by some 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 guy. She made a decision to step in, you know, and she didn't realize it was being filmed or that it was going to go viral, but then that ended up helping change the narrative or at least complicate the narrative around Muslims and Jews. So I spoke to spoke to that woman Asma. So there's a lot of those moments as you say those taking a left or taking a right moments in the book where people make an active decision 
to search for something positive or search for something hopeful. I mean, maybe maybe hope is a good place to um, bring things to a close with our final question. So you talk right at the end of the book about a journey towards a more hopeful land. And after these years of research and talking to so many people, does this more hopeful land feel closer to hand than it did before? Or does it feel further away? And why? Well, it certainly felt very, very hopeless around about 2016, 2017, which is when I first sort of started some of the work towards the book. You know, um, 2016, 17 was Manchester Arena, London Bridge, Westminster Bridge. So that felt very, very bleak. So if it stayed like, if I was still as bleak as that, things would be, things would be in trouble. So, so the answer to that is, I am not somebody who just believes in hope just for the sake of it. But I do feel more hopeful. And the reason I feel hopeful is twofold. One is I've just met a lot of people whose stories I did not know, who were just on the ground doing good things in their own small ways, which are helping build bridges or showing that, you know, the religion of Islam can be a religion which is about fostering better community relations and helping people and being hospitable and they don't get the notice they don't get the news but if you just hear enough of those stories you think okay that's not that's not as bad as i thought it was you know so that's the first thing and the second second reason is you know there's there there's there's people who sort of think that everything about this subject is about politics and is about policies and is about institutional understandings of you know racism etc and 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 all the responses have to be institutional and political and i don't know if that's true i think that's there's definitely a role for that but i also think there is a massive role for the for people and what they do and i think that the reason i feel hopeful is because there have been so many stories that i've read and i've talked about and i've included in the book which remind me that all of us have the power in our own decision making to make things more hopeful you know and i think that's what's quite interesting is because in 2016 2017 i felt a bit powerless i was just like is this really the country i want to live in it just you know the tommy robinson brigade were everywhere it was just it was feeling like an ugly place and what this book and what writing this book has reminded me is that every day all of us are faced with decisions that we can make and it, we all have that version of turning left or right about something and whether that's about engaging with somebody in a shop who looks a bit different to us, who's serving us, but we have a conversation with, or whether it's about stepping in, or whether it's about, you know, giving some charity, giving us some of our spare clothes to the Afghan refugees who might be arriving in our town. We all have something we can do to build and shape the nation we want to live in. And so when you're reminded of that power that one has, you can feel a bit more hopeful. Great. Well, I've got about 120 more questions I'd like to ask you, but I think that seems a really good place to end. So thank you so much for chatting, Safraz Manzor. And They, What Muslims and Non-Muslims Get Wrong About Each Other is available in all good bookshops. And if you want a bit more nuance and insight in your life, go and get yourselves a copy. Thank you very much for talking. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review or a rating and find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Beham Lit Fest. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcast, 
and find transcripts of our episodes in the show notes. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.